Hey CBC, thanks for joining us this morning. Today's passage is from Colossians 3:15-17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you as you teach and admonish each other with all wisdom, and as you sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitudes in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. Welcome to worship this week, everybody. My name's Charlie. I'm the senior pastor here. It is the first Sunday of the month. So for us at CBC, that means that we're live streaming this at 9 a.m. And then we have a live outdoor service at 10 a.m. So good news. You can watch this, hop in your car, drive the speed limiter slightly above for the good of Jesus, and come join us outside at 10 a.m., right? It's going to be so good. And we're going to have a tight 45-minute service because it's a little chilly, but it's worth it. And it's good to be in the community of other believers. But before we get into the message this morning, let's take some time and prepare our hearts. We do this every week because at CBC, we want to be more than just critics of what people talk about and what people say. Our culture incites criticism in us and and raises up critics. And as the family of faith comes together, like we're going to talk about today, God calls us to contribute to the conversation of faith that we have with one another so that we might see him more clearly. So we're going to take just a minute or two at the beginning, and we're just going to pray and prepare our hearts. And I'll ask that you pray for yourself, and you pray that God uses the preparation done this week to help us to see it more clearly. So pray with me. God, I'm thankful that we can gather here online or outside in about an hour. I'm thankful that we can watch this later on and remember how good you are, that we can sing songs about your goodness and your faithfulness. As we gather together today, as we stop down in the middle of or the end of our week, I I just pray that you speak to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you create in us just a, a greater recognition of how good you are and how good you've been to us, no matter what our week's been like, whether it's been one of the best or one of the worst, you're still good. So go before us today and speak to us and through your word, reveal um, your character. I'd ask that you just, wherever you're at, take 10 or 15 seconds, and if you're comfortable, say a prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to meet you today and to speak to your spirit. And then ask that you pray for me, that I I might do a, a good job preparing us and presenting the character of God this morning. Pray these things in the name of Jesus, all God's people, wherever you are said. That's right, amen. So today is Fall Back Sunday. So I'm wondering how many of you got an extra hour of sleep and everybody with small children said, not me, right? Today is one of those days where I, I love being a parent and at the same time I remember that it's harder than I thought it was at the beginning. There's this phrase that comes to mind on today's like, like days like today. Days like today when before I had small children, I used to celebrate the extra hour of sleep and now I mourn because I lose what everybody else gains when they wake up at the same time or sometimes earlier just to toy with you a little bit. 
There's this phrase, we, we know it, right? The devil is in the details. And really what that means is simply that something might seem simple at first look, but really it takes more effort to complete it than initially thought. That there's more effort and energy that goes into doing what you thought you could do easily. I think for me, having, for anybody with kids, having kids is a great example of this. Yesterday, we had some friends that all got together for Halloween, a very social distance, fun Halloween. And some of my best friends just had twin girls that are three months old. And they dressed them up in lobsters and they laid them on a mat and it was adorable. And we started talking just about how good and difficult it's been simultaneously to raise twin daughters with a four-year-old. And I, I thought about what it was like when my daughter was born. I thought about how I took all the classes and I thought I was gonna be the best dad ever. And by the time you're done with all the classes, you think, I got this, this is no big deal. And then you go through the birthing of the kid and everything is euphoric. And you spend two days in the hospital and you sleep two hours and then they let you go. And it's really funny because at least at my hospital, they wouldn't let you walk in the hallway holding your kid, it was a liability. So, so they take you down to your car and you've slept two hours in two days, give or take, and they wheel you down there and you're holding the kid and then they dump you in your vehicle after you haven't slept for two days and they say, good luck, have fun, you know? You're like, what? what is happening here? And in that moment, you realize that what you thought you were gonna crush is gonna take a little more effort. The devil is in the details. We, we do it all the time, culturally. I think the biggest example of how we do this is probably New Year's resolutions. You're gonna make lofty goals, like I'm gonna lose 20 pounds or I'm gonna get in shape. And then you're gonna wake up on Monday morning and say, but I really like burgers and fries and I really don't like sweating. And so it's gonna be way more difficult to get to the lofty goals that you have. We do that societally, we do that culturally. Sometimes we forget in a culture that really focuses on the emotional wins and the big picture highs that really the devil is in the details. We're going through Colossians. And in Colossians, especially in chapter three, Paul is telling us what our new faith family looks like. He's encouraging us to live into a new way of life with a new reality and, and, and kind of a new guiding principle. And this is the text we left last week. This is what he calls us to be. He said, bear with one another and forgive each other. If someone happens to have a complaint against anyone else, just as the Lord has forgiven you, you also should forgive others. And to all these virtues put on or add love, which is the perfect bond. That is a lofty goal. That is one of those big pictures, I'm going to crush this parenting thing, forgetting the devil is in the details. That is one of those huge, amazing, worth reaching for moments when we say, this is who we're going to be as the community of Christ. And today what he does is he follows it up with, here's how. He says, I know that's a lot and I know that's hard. And I know it's difficult just to say, love everybody all the time. And so in our text today, in 15 through 17, he gives us four imperatives on how to do just what he said. He gives us four imperatives to live in the everyday so that one day we will look like the community that God meant us to be. And he starts off by saying, let the peace of Christ be in control of your heart for you were in fact called as one body to this peace and be thankful. We gotta stop down a little bit there because you gotta do some work with that idea or understanding of peace. Because so often I think in the States and just culturally, when we define peace, we define peace as the absence of violence, first and foremost. 
Two, if it's not defined as the absence of violence, I think it's defined individualistically. So it's not just that I didn't punch somebody today, it's that I have this inner peace inside of me that, that guides me through chaotic times, meaning like in the middle of COVID when the world is freaking out, I'm fine because Jesus is my anchor. It's an individualistic take on what he says when he says, may the peace of Christ be in control or rule you. In this specific context, it's, it's, it's really neither of those. There's another dimension to the idea of peace in the scriptures, stemming mostly from an Old Testament understanding of the Hebraic word for peace, shalom. But we see it in Genesis 1. It's this idea that that when God created, he, he created in a right order that rightly led to the flourishing of all his creation. So when, when he says peace here, it's not simply I have an inner peace. It's not just the lack of violence. It's the rightly ordering of God's good creation. A definition we use at CBC that I like is peace or the shalom of God is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. What he's saying is might the right order of God rule you every day. So when he says that let the peace of Christ be in control of your heart, he's saying may the right order of God go before you in your community every single day. And that every day comes from the idea that he says, may it rule you or be in control of your heart. When we talk about the idea of heart, we've talked about this before. It's not just your emotions like we would define it as. Heart was the place where you made all of your decisions. It was where this intersection in the first century world of where your intellect and where your emotions and where your will and where your resolve came together. Heart was the driving force behind all of who you were. So when something is controlling your heart, it's your mind, will, and emotions. That's, that's why when, when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love God with all your heart, with all that you have, with all of your intellect and all of your emotion and all of your will. Love God with all of it because he's deserving of all of it. And so Paul says, here's the first imperative. Might the peace of Christ be in control of your heart? What he's saying is might the peace of Christ rule you? Might might it be your guiding principle? Because in life, we have competing principles all the time. And and, and the ones that we choose to give more value to guide the other ones. For example, my my immediate family guides usually my decisions over my friends. I value them greater than the friendships in my life because they're my family. We all have guiding principles that guide all the other principles. What Paul is saying here is might the right order of community guide your every decision— That word rule there or guide carries with it this idea of umpire or judgment that it might be the lens through which you see all the other things. So Paul's gonna do, he's gonna say, look, you have these lofty goal of loving one another and forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. And that begins with understanding that your collective good as a community is better than your individual good. He begins by saying the peace of Christ, the rightly ordered world of Christ that leads to the right flourishing of his people might be your guide. It's what we've been talking about. It replaces me with we because now we realize there's something bigger than me. One of my favorite examples of this is from a Christian writer and teacher, theologian named Dallas Willard. And he was in a class one day And uh, I'll just quote the story for you. It says that he was in one of his philosophy classes and a student raised and objected to something Willard said that was both insulting towards Dallas and clearly wrong. Instead of correcting him, 
Dallas Willard gently said that it'd be a good place to end class that day. After that, a friend approached Dallas Willard and said, why did you let him get away with that? Why didn't you demolish him? And he replied, I was practicing the discipline of not having the last word. Meaning, I'm going to let the principle of peace in our community guide my action. It is a better good than me being right right now. That's profound. So he's saying every single day, the guiding principle of your community, of your decisions, is the peace of God. He's saying, might it guide all of the inward desires of your heart? And then he goes on and says, for you were in fact called as one body to this peace and be thankful. So then he kicks it further down the road and said, just so you can be clear about this, you're no longer all about you anymore because you were in fact called as one body to peace, meaning that that what moves the heart of God now moves our heart collectively as the people of God. One commentator said, the gospel is inescapably individual in its focus. Each of us on our own is called by God and responds in faith on our own. Yet at the same time, the gospel is inescapably corporate. We're called along with other people with whom we make up one body. Because in the first century world, you had so many different kinds of people with different baggage and different families and different ethnicities that were brought into the family of God. And God says, now your best good is our best good. We're gonna come up into the Christmas season and families are gonna fight over what traditions we live into and not, well, my family did this and my family did this and we open presents on Christmas Eve, not Christmas morning. You're ruining my Christmas. You're gonna get into all these things and all of our baggage that we bring in and Paul is challenging that and saying your best good here is that every day, if you wanna love well, every day pursue community peace, not at the expense of the gospel, that's at the heart of the gospel because you're now motivated by Jesus by his good, by his mission, by his grace, and you show that in and to one another. So he challenges the very fabric of our being and what drives us. Saying, if you wanna live in this lofty goal, every day remember your guiding principle. And then he said, this is where that leads, the second imperative. He says that you were called to one body, to this peace, and be thankful. It's a driving theme in Colossians, thankfulness. It's a driving theme in the life of any follower of Jesus, thankfulness. It's the chief end of maturity. Thankful people are usually mature people. It's why we bless meals at the beginning of them. Because what thankfulness does is it, in every single way, removes ungratefulness and replaces it with gracefulness. It's really difficult to be thankful and prideful in the same time. You know that? It's really difficult to say, God, thank you for these green beans. I'm, I'm so thankful for this meal and be like, man, I hate these green beans. God is not good, you know? And I hate green beans. It's really difficult to be thankful and be prideful or to be thankful and to be ungrateful at the same time. So Paul says, first might the peace of Christ, the rightly orderedness of your community, might you fight for that peace and then be thankful because God is good enough. Be thankful in all you do because thankfulness removes the tetheringness of pride from your life because what we're thankful toward puts everything in perspective. And so Paul says, be ruled by peace and be thankful. It's amazing what thankfulness does. I spent a lot of time this weekend with a a family, friends of ours, and um, one of them I, I would go to mission trips every year to Mexico with high school kids and Arizona with high school kids and all over the community. We went for years and years and... When our youth group goes to Mexico here and builds houses, it's awesome. It's awesome, and you do something called bucket showers, you know? 
And a bucket shower, if you don't know, is when you get a bucket and you fill it with water, and we call that a shower. It's never, um, room, it's ne- it's never heated. It's always pretty cold. Uh, it's usually not a very fun experience, but it gets the job done. Here's my point. Is that first shower when we get back into the hotel after seven days of bucket showers? Even if you're the last one in your room full of four to take a shower and the shower's gross and it smells and the hot water's gone, you know what you're thankful for? A shower. It's amazing what thankfulness does for our ungratefulness. And so what Paul says is very, very much understand that the peace of Christ rules you as a people and you're known for your thankfulness because it removes ungratefulness and pride. He's replacing the me with the radical we as we've been talking about. And so he says, might you do those two things? Third imperative, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and exhorting one another with all wisdom. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I grew up and I had a Bible. I don't see him as much as I used to. I had a Bible and it had all the red letters in it, you know, like the, the letters of Jesus. And it's funny, my roller coaster of opinion on that, I have a lot of opinions, but my roller coaster of opinion on the red letter Bibles, at first you're like, these are the words of Jesus, they're more important. And then you go to Bible college and all the words of the Bible are equally as important because they're all inspired by God. So then you're gonna cross out all the red letters and write them in black like everything else. And then you realize, well, maybe if the message of God in the Bible is all about Jesus in the first place, let's keep them red to begin with. It's this roller coaster of what should be the development of all Christians towards their relationship with the scriptures. The scriptures are a means to an end. We don't worship the Bible, we worship the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible, the message that the Bible points to in all its facets and forms, Old Testament or New, is the person and work of Jesus. And so our scripture that we teach through today tells us a clearer picture of Jesus, gives us more depth for the grace that he shows us, and makes him more beautiful so that we pick Jesus every single day. That's what the word of Christ is here the totality of Christ's interactions with people that we see in the scriptures, not just the red letters. They all point to who Jesus is. They all point to what he did. They all point to the depth and beauty of his grace towards us. And so he says, let the word of Christ, I love this word, dwell. This word dwell carries with it this sense of ownership. Don't just like rent a house, but, but dwell in the house. It's a sense of, um, it's lived in. In John 1, it talks about Jesus literally dwelt among us. He moved here and said, these are gonna be my people when he took on flesh incarnation in Christmas. And that word dwell there really says, let the, word, the message of Christ do more than just be something you pass by, but might you value it more. So let me tell you something. I have rented houses and I've, I've bought a house. And let me tell you which one I treat nicer <laughs> every single time. If you have rental properties, you know that people don't treat rental properties like they treat things you own because when you own something, you value it more. The scripture saying here, may the, the message of Christ, the, the, the person of Christ, the gospel of Christ dwell richly in you, take ownership of it because you value it. Might you dwell in richly the message of Jesus. Like what one commentator said, they said, before every activity in the church, they should answer two questions. Is the peace of Christ present in the congregation at this point? And is this consistent with, and will it promote the knowledge of the word of Christ? That's why every week that we get together, we pray that God might meet us here and God might teach us. Might the peace of Christ be promoted in our gathering together and might we learn more about the beauty of the message of Jesus. 
saying, might it dwell in you richly. And he goes on to say, teaching and exhorting one another with all wisdom. And what he means by that literally is just that the, the teachings of Jesus might guide who you are and who you're becoming. He uses two words there that are pretty interchangeable, but they kind of give you this sense of totality that they might teach you and they might admonish you. There's two different nuances of those words. Teaching is when we talk about Jesus when it's fun. Admonishing is when we talk about Jesus when it's not. Teaching is when we sit around and say, man, God is good and God's calling me to love my wife more and to have more joy and to be thankful. Admonishing is me saying, you're not doing that. We need some change. And so what they're saying is, might it dwell within you richly and it might it guide all of your life in the good times and the bad times. And he says, might you use the scriptures that, that show the way of Jesus as a guide all the time when it's easy and when it's hard. And I love what he says next. He says, might you do it with all wisdom? And that's so needed and oftentimes so overlooked. We think that if we're teaching the truth of anything, that if we don't say truth in the moment, then we either devalue truth or we aren't as tethered to it. I just don't think that's true. So it says, use wisdom in how you teach the truth of Jesus, meaning that the goodness of God given at not a good time sometimes isn't heard as goodness. That's why we do love facts that we just talked about earlier on. Because it's tough to tell kids that are hungry that Jesus is good if we're eating and they're not. And, and really, what Paul's saying is that when you use Jesus as a guide for your life, when you let the peace of Christ rule your community, when you well up in you this place of thankfulness that, that removes the me and places in the we, and then when you live by the principles of Jesus every day, do it with wisdom. Talk about Jesus in ways that people hear and understand and are good to them because that's what grace looks like so often. And so teach and admonish and do it with all wisdom. He says, here's another way to dwell. So here's how we dwell. We value Jesus by talking about Jesus in the good and bad and easy and tough conversations. And then we value or we dwell in the rhythms and the words of Christ by worshiping. It says, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with all grace in your hearts to God. Here's what I know. I've been going to church for 36-ish years now. And every church I go to kind of looks the same. And I've been to a spectrum of churches. I took a class in grad school and I had to visit six different kinds of churches from your super buttoned up liturgical Anglican services to your Pentecostal African-American churches on the south side of Chicago. That service lasted four and a half hours, everybody, right? And sure, there were different nuances and a lot more dancing, but let me tell you something. They all had the same components. They got up there and they taught the word of God and then they sang about God's goodness every single time. And here's why churches do that. It's because that's how God designed the world to work. From the beginning of creation to the end of the biblical narrative, what we see is song. Literally, it says in Job 38, the morning stars sang together and all heavenly beings shouted for joy at the dawn of creation. And then in Revelations 5.13, it says at the end, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them will sing to the Lamb. Think about that. It is how God designed us to function and flourish. It's a part of how we dwell in or take ownership of or value the teachings of Jesus. We sing about it. And I know some people think, well, I'm not much of a singer that's never resonated with me. There, there are study after study after study, but the value of singing in the community of God. And we've known about it. 
One church father, Thomas Aquinas, said, A hymn is the praise of God with song. A song is the exaltation of the mind dwelling on eternal things, bursting forth in voice. Here's what I know. I know that I have a two-year-old. I know that she really likes to sing. And I know that singing does some things for me and for her. And I think this is why Paul values singing. I think it's why God told us to sing is because it does a couple things for us. First and for us, first and foremost, when we sing, it just helps us remember. I guarantee you, you remember your songs from when you grew up and when you were in high school. You remember the lyrics. They'll just come back to you. Because singing helps us remember. There are study after study on that. I don't need studies. I have a two-year-old whose favorite song is the ants go marching. Do you know how many times a day I think in my head that the ants are marching, hurrah, hurrah? So many times because I cannot forget about how the ants go marching because when we sing, it causes us to remember. And in a culture that so often forgets the goodness of God, how much more do we need to remember that he is good? in the moments where we see it and in the moments where we seemingly don't. Not only does it help us remember, singing actually unites us. There is a study put out a couple years ago and a woman that wrote a book on it called Imperfect Harmony, Finding Happiness Singing with Others. Her name's Stacy Horn, and she says, what has not been understood until recently is that singing in groups triggers the communal release of serotonin and, oxy, and oxytocin, which, which bonding hormone and even synchronizes our heartbeats. She goes on to say, group singing literally incentivized community over an each cave dweller for themselves approach. Those who sang together were strongly bonded and survived. She said, group singing can produce satisfying and therapeutic sensations even when the sound produced by the vocal instrument is mediocre quality. <laughs> Think about that. So you're thinking, I'm not very good at singing. That means keep singing. I might stand somewhere else, but keep singing because it grows us together and it builds our unity. When we all sing the same thing together, it unites us. And Paul is talking about how to be united as a community. He's saying that this is good for you. It's how God created you. He called us to come together and worship. It's a response to his goodness. And finally, I think what singing does is it reflects why God is worthy. It's like today. We started by singing Psalm 51, and it says, Every time I fall, I fall into your grace. I can see your strength clearer now than ever. You pick me up and you love me and rid me of my sin. Jesus, I am yours. You're mine forever. <laughs> We're going to sing What a Beautiful Name in just a second. And that says, You didn't want heaven without us. You brought heaven down. My sin was great, but your love was greater. Nothing can separate us now. What a beautiful name. What a wonderful name. The name of Jesus. It reminds us why God is worthy of worship in a culture that asks us to worship so many different things. The last song we're going to sing today is How Great Thou Art. How Great Thou Art. And How Great Thou Art, if you don't know the song, How, how Great Thou Art is a song written by a Swedish guy in the middle of the 1800s. And the story goes something like this. He was at work, and he lived in a bayside village. And this thunderstorm sprung up out of nowhere. And he said it was pretty epic. There was crashing thunder, and there was, like, just lightning that lit up the sky, and you could feel the chaos and the power of the storm. And then all of a sudden, it stopped. He said when it stopped, he ran home as fast as he could. He opened his bay window, and he felt the breeze come in. And there was this moment where he sat between the utter power of the storm and the utter peace of the tranquility of after the storm. And he sat down, and he wrote the words, How great thou art. The Lord my God, when I consider an awesome wonder, 
all that your hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul. When Christ will come and shout of acclamation and lead me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow with humble adoration and proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Songs remind us of why God is worthy of worship as we remember them. And so Paul's saying you have this goal as a community and it's really lofty. Let me break it down for you. Let me give you four imperatives. Let the guiding rule of peace in your community be your guiding principle. Dwell, dwell, dwell. Take ownership in the ways and rhythms of Jesus every single day and be thankful and that replaces the me with the we mindset. What what he's saying, and he's gonna say in verse 17, and whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What he's saying ultimately is here's how you build a strong community. Be captivated by Christ every day. Simply be captivated by Christ every day. So that all you do reflects who he is. So that what you sing about reflects who he is. So that how you see yourself reflects who he is. If you want to build a strong community that does all those lofty things above, be captivated by Christ every single day. And that's a radical thought. It's a radical thought. Because here's the deal, what captivates you forms you. In the first century world, in a Jewish world, they were captivated by the law. They had a pride in the law. And so what'd they do? They made more laws. So much so in the Old and New Testament, we see it again and again. The writers say, you've missed the purpose of the law. You worship the law, but that's not the best good here. God is, you've missed it. You've missed it. So he says, every single day, be captivated by Christ. So the application, I guess, is decently simple but really profoundly complex, like all these lofty goals are. It's how are you captivated by Christ? How can you do more of those things? So for some people, it's going to simply be, I need to read about Jesus because I'm forgetting who he is. A couple years ago, the week before Easter, for a sermon, I kind of did 10 minutes of an intro and then I just read the passion narrative. And I reminded us all of this is what Jesus went through for you and me, and it captivated people. I got emails and letters and handshakes and hugs pre-COVID about how beautiful that was. It's one of those moments that caused us to remember how Christ captivates our souls. So for some of us, it's just reading the scriptures. For some of us, it's singing throughout our day, on or off key. For, for some of us, it's simply saying, I'm going to value the peace of Christ in the community because my heartbeat beats with the heartbeat of Jesus. My simple question is, if we want to build strong community, we need to be captivated by Christ. What captivates you when you think of Jesus? How does that happen? I watched this documentary this week. It's been going around and around. Uh, it's called The Social Dilemma. Oh my goodness. I think everybody needs to watch it. It, it will, if you're on social media, <laughs> it'll cause you to question so many things in your world. But, but one of the dominating factors in this documentary was all these social media platforms are just vying for your attention. They all want to captivate you so you never leave. They send you different posts and they send you different, um, uh, they send you different, I don't even know what they're called, the things that pop up on your screen. I'm a bad millennial everybody, right? They send you these things at different times and places so that you might never leave. And when you click on a link, they know what you click on so that they'll send you something a little farther down that rabbit trail the next time so it keeps captivating you. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves two hours later still scrolling Instagram or Facebook. See, what Paul says 
is if you want to be a community that loves like Jesus, be captivated by Jesus. If you want to be a community that forgives like Jesus, be captivated by Jesus. Might his peace rule you? Might you dwell in him? Might you be thankful and then watch how everything you do in word or in deed is done in his name? This is where the WWJD movement got their beginning before Lance Armstrong took over the market of the wristbands. He's saying, if you want strong Christian community, might you be captivated by Christ? So here's the simple yet profound question this week. How are you being captivated by Jesus every day? Find those ways. Press into those ways. Because here's what I know. That individually, if we're all captivated by Jesus, corporately what happens is we begin to see Jesus change who we are and the world around us. Because that's what movements do. Movements that are captivated by an idea and captivate individuals change their world. So Jesus is writing to a Colossian church and he's saying, be different, be new, be a faith family centered around Jesus, be captivated by his beauty every single day as his peace rules, as you're thankful, as he dwells in you, as everything you do reflects who he is. Let me pray.